everyone at Better Red Than Dead. I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land upon which we are meeting, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We wish to pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging. So when this landed on the desk here, I was incredibly excited. Um, I've never really looked at a cookbook that has featured uh, Indigenous ingredients before, or native ingredients, I should say. And it was just such a pleasure to discover this. So I'm just so excited that these two lovely people are here. There are dire warnings that New South Wales will be hit by increasingly extreme weather. 2015 was the hottest year since climate records began. Your show this July was the single hottest month in recorded history. Australia sweltered through its hottest spring on record. Climate change is now affecting every country on every continent. It's the rate that's a great concern. And what do you put that rate down to? Oh, it's human activity. We have everything we need. Some still doubt that we have the will to act, but I say the will to act is itself a renewable resource. Hello and welcome to Climactic, the podcast sharing the stories from Australia's climate community. This week, we're going to Sydney, to the bookstore Better Red Than Dead, for the launch of a new book that teaches us how to use Australian native ingredients. Host Georgia interviews authors and friends of the show, Rebecca Sullivan and Damien Coulthard. The book is called Warn Do My, Good Food, in the language of Damien's people. You'll learn why native food is good food and how important it is to save and preserve ever rarer native plants. Georgia also speaks to Marie Lowe's, who moderated the book launch about her path into the sustainability movement, her work and impact as Dirt Girl, and what sustains and inspires her. Enjoy! So I'm thrilled to be sitting here with Damien Coulthard and Rebecca Sullivan, aka Granny Skills. I'm currently sitting in a really breezy, open green space here in Newtown, awaiting the launch of their new cookbook, Wandu Mai, which I got right, which showcases recipes making native Australian food accessible to home cooks. Damien is a teacher, artist and storyteller whose work is being showcased across the country and Rebecca is a food curator, sustainable living advocate, author, regenerative farmer, teacher, all the rest Um, and together they have founded an Australian native wellbeing brand Warundu in 2013 I believe. Together they make a power couple frankly and I'm really really excited to be speaking to both of them today before the launch of their new book so thank you so much for your time. No thank you for your time. Thank you. (laughs) So we're here for the launch of I believe your seventh book since 2010. Since 2013. Okay seven books in seven years. Yes now that you say it like that that's just made me go wow yeah that's a lot of books in a lot in not so many years potentially. I'm actually 96 I forgot to tell you that. (laughs) Legit granny skills right? Granny skills right? (laughs) So apart from the question of you know where do you get all your energy from Um, which is a given, I'm really curious to know um, how your purpose and passion has sort of evolved over the last seven years with the evolution of all your books. Gosh, that's a great question. Thanks for such a great question first straight up. I've been what feels like in this sort of sustainable food arena for a really long time, for probably like 13 or 14 years, but I think I've truly come into it. I've sort of changed course quite a few times but I really feel like I'm on the right path now and that's really in part to meeting Damien six years ago and realising that here I am a champion of local food 
and here I am actually a hypocrite because I've never eaten truly local food, as in I've never actually eaten Australian native food. So I meet Damien, I'm on this like, what I think is this path of spreading local food goodness. And um, it hit me like a ton of bricks. I couldn't even comprehend how much of a hypocrite I felt, you know. So the path I'm on now feels more, almost feels like what I was meant to be doing because it doesn't just talk about food anymore. I get to go back to what I originally studied, which was a Master's in Sustainable Agriculture and Climate Change, and I'm finally back on that path again. And I, that, that, I guess, academic sort of path was in 2010, so it was a really long time ago, and I sort of got, fell off the path working in food and getting kind of caught up in that world, and now I really feel like I'm back on that path, and it's more, point, it's more important than ever for me to be back on that path because of what's going on in the world really talking about so your journey back 2010 you did a master's and then you've gone on this food sort of journey so now you've got a mission when it comes to um, native australian foods and i'd really love to hear more about what that mission is and where you see that intersecting with climate change the long and short of that is that we live in australia we are going through exacerbated change and if people can't see that i, I don't even know what they're wearing on their eyes but I grew up in a farming community, you know, lived in a very small, tiny farming town, wheat and sheep, total monoculture, didn't think anything of it back then because I wasn't aware of any of this stuff and it wasn't on my radar, I didn't really even care about it then. Now I live on a 90-acre property that Damien and I bought a year ago now so that we can be regenerative farmers. And in the last year, I've probably cried more than I've cried in my entire life because I've seen it all happening around me and it's just so, it's, it's, yeah, I feel like I'm being strangled by it at the moment. In terms of Wandu, what we're about is education and then also learning from other people. I think it's really important to work with many different Aboriginal nations because there are many different narratives, narratives related to plants that used to exist in a place which no longer exist anymore due to pastoralists, due to cattle and sheep overeating it and I guess just from another person's perspective knowing that there were 2,000 generations of family on country who lived with the land and from the land and with all living things in fact um, sustainably for so many so many years so let's move back to that and we can only do that through collaboration so collaboration with the three levels of government collaboration with current farmers and then local Aboriginal businesses and get together, have a conversation and put our native plants back in the soil which supported our soil for so long and that's a place which you really need to start. I couldn't even say that any better if I tried. Basically, our soil needs native plants in it. So whilst we started out being a food business, we've fallen more into wanting to be a, a lifestyle business that promotes Australian native flora, fauna, culture because we need it for future generations for sustainability purposes these plants need to be in the ground we need to be eating these foods from a medicinal perspective and we need to be you know sharing in that culture for to to bridge a very big gap that is thankfully getting smaller and smaller here in Australia so there's so many reasons why we need to be doing this but 
soil, if you if anyone reads our mission statement, is it is to regenerate culture, community, tradition, health, and soil is actually in our mission statement. And by that we mean you know any native plants because they belong in the soil here, and they're going to help to repair it long term. It's it's pretty fascinating work, and being a big fan of Bruce Pascoe myself, mm-hmm. having read um, a lot of his work, and being an absolute foodie disclaimer. Mm-hmm. And working in agriculture myself, uh, I find it really interesting that at the age of 27, this mm. is the first time uh, within the last year that I've really started thinking about native Australian foods. Mm. And I also have that, I guess, the, there's an element of guilt, but also hypocrisy mm. around um, being very passionate about local food and really not feeling like I understand it. So it's awesome to see business, like commercial enterprise, trying to bring community together as well and make it actually self-sustaining. Yeah. But what I'm really fascinated about is, uh, I guess, I get the logistics of it in the sense of if the native foods have somewhat been removed from pasture, um, how are we going about getting seeds and making and bringing them back to life? Two years ago, we visited um, Outback Pride, Mike and Gail Cornby, um, who've worked in the industry for many, many years. Obviously, we know that Australia has many, many different environments and the soil is very different, so not all plants grow in the same area. So it's about linking back with the community, hearing the narratives about what had what was here, um, and then working with those types of experts in the field and um, researching and then taking it back. And Mike and Gail Cornby were um, developing their soil to suit that climate, mm-hmm. um, to suit that plant and growing in styrofoam boxes. Yep. So starting from that and then I guess developing the seed and then passing on, taking back to local country from where it originated from. And we have, it's important to note here, we have lost seed already. We've lost plants. We've, we've lost plants to overseas. I mean, we've, Israel is the biggest exporter of Australian native flowers in the world. Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> and that's because we let seed leave and we let another country take over enterprise and take Indigenous IP and make money from it. And I fear, we both fear, that that's going to happen with all of our native plants. The same thing's going on. Utah and Arizona and Thailand and Malaysia are some of the biggest growers of Australian finger lime in the world. Australia's not. We need to protect these seeds. We need to protect the IP before we lose another however many. No one knows exactly how many plants we've lost, but it's lots. And if we don't keep fighting from our side for this to be in every Australian's pantry so that there is this desire for seed saving. I mean, we plan on building a a seed bank actually uh, on our property when we open our food school. But um, we've lost stuff and we need to act quick um, or we're gonna lose more. We're already losing animals left, right and centre. It's only a matter of time before we lose seeds. So we basically are the hugest collaborators ever. And we will work with anyone on this stuff, uh, anyone that's doing things ethically. So there are people out there and there are people out there in like houses and farms and community groups that don't know each other yet. And our hope is to be also um, a little bit of a conduit for that kind of activity so that these people can talk to each other, so that these people can share seeds, so that the shared seeds can then go back to community where they've lost, you know, their native plants. So it is happening. It's totally possible. And there is a lot of it out there. It's just about all of us now talking to each other. I think it's important to note that 
myself and Beck aren't experts. Mm-hmm. And like you said, we, we are all about collaborating and it's all about bringing other people in and sharing their story. And once they sh- our stories are combined, then we can move forward, forward as a nation, as a community and put more native foods into the pantries of every household. Mm-hmm. So it's all about access. And if we don't have knowledge and understanding about it, we don't have access to make any decisions about our food choices. So that's what One D May is about. It's about exposing every Australian household about the basic recipes that you can cook in your kitchens with your children's, with your children, sorry, and then move forward from children's. that. <laughs> <laughs> and would you say that now, given the climate that we're in, not only literally but also figuratively, <laughs> yeah. that now is really the time to be acting? You know, you've spoken before about some of the benefits, the fact that those seeds do match our soils, as you would imagine, they evolved together. So do you think there is definitely a, a case to be made when it comes to actually more sustainable ways of eating as well? Yeah, I think the time to act was 50 years ago, you know, 100 years ago. But we're past it and it's better for us to be going into this positively as opposed to doom and gloom. We still can mitigate, we still can make change, we still have the power with our own wallets, with our own telephones you know smartphones with the way we eat we eat three times a day you know we're in a real powerful position and we're in a real amazing time at the moment the energy is crazy not just from a climate change perspective and a political perspective here in Australia but also from us in a native food industry this book proposal got turned away by four major publishers they went no no it's too niche and this was only like a year and a half ago and Robert at Hachette was like, I love it, I want it, I'm in, all in. Couldn't be better timing because it's accessible, it's more accessible now. Five years ago we wouldn't have been able to write this book also because there are 50 odd ingredients in the book that we use and half of those you wouldn't have been able to get your hands on but you can now. That's probably fair, isn't it, Dane? Yeah. I was just going to mention just with all the health issues that um, Aboriginal people face at the moment due to the change in food sources over, over many generations has really impacted the health and well-being in the way we are today. So I think by once again having access to foods that we once ate from many different nations, that'll change hopefully our eating habits and then also the way we look, the way we feel, so we become successful in all realms. So mm-hmm. it's really important. Australians need to see food as medicine. When we share our foods with people, Asian people get it straight away. Straight away, they understand the flavours, they understand the health benefits and why it's so important to be eating these things and that food isn't just fuel, food is nourishing your body. And we as Australians haven't, some have, we've got you know um, our, our pods of people who absolutely live that way, but generally speaking, food is fuel, food is fun, food is enjoyment, but food needs to be medicine. It needs to be preventative as, a, as opposed to the opposite, you know. Um, and I think that's what these foods are. There's thousands of them, and they all have mega, mega health benefits, all of them. Proteins, carbohydrates, fibres, every vitamin under the sun, you know. And if we're prepared to pay 30 bucks for a bag of goji berries from South America but we're not prepared to pay 30 bucks for a bag of Davidson Plum from Australia that has the same health benefits that hasn't flown halfway across the world and is addressing those cultural issues 
because we're bridging a gap and we're creating industry and employment for Indigenous Australians and telling Indigenous Australian stories. I mean, come on, like it's a no-brainer. And all of that's taken you back to land, hasn't it? All of this love for food and has taken you back to land. And so I, I kind of want to go to the Clare Valley now um, <laughs> because one of your most recent posts really spoke to me. So I've got it written down as a regenerative farmer I am learning to be, which I think applies to both of you, yes. if I'm right. Yes. <laughs> and those worlds just really resonated. And I'm so fascinated to know about your life in the Clare Valley, what your hopes are for that space. And I guess I'm really fascinated by some of the lessons you've learned since being on land because it's very, we're all frustrated farmers, some of us foodies, but it's very different living it. And I'd love to hear about those lessons you've learned. I guess the hardest thing over the last 12 months has been the lack of rainfall and how dry it's been and watching your plants um, under duress but then also seeing when you get a spot of rain um, the number of bird species that flock and just the pure joy and the noise that they make so that climate is obviously changing slowly and it's impacting not only us as humans and what we grow but also um, you know the habitats that surround our property as well so that's really sad. Um, Clare Valley is a beautiful place and we do have 90 acres and yes we want to grow all these amazing things and involve everyone but it's going to take an effort, um, a massive effort and a collaboration with many different businesses and we really want to involve um, Aboriginal people and Aboriginal businesses because I think that's where it's at and then we can move forward to that. I've been banging on about living this way for over a decade and comes back to being feeling a little bit like a hypocrite again you know preach 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 passionately not preachy but you know talking about living a particular way and then living in a two-bedroom apartment in Bowdoin um, in in Adelaide and when the opportunity came up and we found this property it was just almost as if it was are meant to be ours. It, it, the people, Des and Leslie Menz, who we bought it from, are us 20 years ahead, basically. They put 20 years of work into a 90-acre piece of land that was total monoculture, that had few trees, and we now have three tree plantations, sugar gum, red gum, or the acacia, and then there's a few others as well. So we are surrounded by trees. We are surrounded by... We walk on nothing but native grass native perennial grasses. We live in a straw bale house that's completely circular. So we have a worm composting system. We catch our own water. We have solar and batteries, solar and batteries. We're living exactly what I've been preaching for the last 15 years. So I feel my most authentic self living this way. I cry often, as I said before, because when things die, I cry. The bees disappeared, I cried. It got warm, so I knew the snakes were coming out, I cried. The blue bandit bees disappeared, I cried, and so on and so on and so on. For every trying time, there's this ma- a magical moment where, like the other day, uh, New Holland honey eater that used to hang out on our yakas out the front of the house came back and I haven't seen her for probably two months and I, cry- I cried. <laughs> it's a total theme here, but I've cried with excitement. We have got this place now that Des and Leslie spent 20 years putting in this hard work of planting these trees and now we get to share it with everyone because we're building um, a farming school, a farming and food school, a seed bank, a seed library, some eco-accommodation, 
beautiful, beautiful thing that's come out of living where we live, apart from being in heaven, is that we are getting to collaborate with even more people. So we're now moving into a fashion project, which I'm super excited about, that is going to tell the story of climate change through natural dye. So our trees are under so much duress that the bark is falling so rapidly and we don't know what to do with it and we know we can make natural dye with it so we're getting to collaborate with an amazing new fashion brand that we're not, not allowed to talk about yet but hopefully we can have another chat sometime down in the future about it and for every garment also sold more plants more trees will be planted on our property so we're just trying to make the most of the duress and turn it into something that can still tell that story of climate change. And Damien's obviously an artist as well, so we've got a studio, we're building a pottery studio and all of this sort of stuff. So it's going to be incredible, but it's just going to be a work in progress always for us. Oh, gosh. Well, it's been so nice speaking with both of you. And, look, I always like to wrap up by um, asking a question that sort of expands our minds and keeps us thinking about the future. So, you know, what is your vision for 2040? What do you think of the world... Um, that you would want to live in in that time and, and what is what's going on what's the hustle bustle um, what's happened I guess uh, what I would like to see is people living sustainably like for example with our house um, fully efficient and sufficient with solar um, capturing our own water growing our own vegetables and just living that one with with nature I guess I would like to think that by 2040 we have no more industrial farms and that even if people do live in the city, they're connected to a small farm, some way, shape or form, whether it's through a CSA, so a community supported agriculture box. We've all got our veg boxes. We all know our farmers. Every single person has got a keep cup because there is no single use plastic left in the world that we've started to go backwards by way of dropping the temperature, that it doesn't look like the ice caps are going to melt that we've protected some of these species that are looking like they're going to be extinct. I would also like to think that some of those kids that we're hearing right now, like Greta, or some of those climate strike kids are are all of the presidents, prime ministers and future leaders of our countries. Couldn't think of a better way to end this (laughs) podcast. Go Greta, basically. (laughs) Well, Damien and Rebecca, it has been beyond exciting to be speaking with you and I really look forward to coming to the launch tonight for the launch of your new book. I'm sure, and I hope you're looking forward to a gin cocktail. Always. Thank you so much. It's been great speaking with you. Thank you. Now it's time for Climactic Community Corner, where we play voice messages sent to us on Facebook. We're opening up this space for the community to share events, news, thoughts, feelings, all sorts. If you've got a message to share, just send it to us at Climactic Show on Facebook or hello at climactic.fm. Hello, Mark and everyone. We need musicians and choirs to join around Australia to sing climate songs to help engage and promote the climate emergency. We in Geelong are holding a musical and poetry meeting for 10-minute slots to sing and read poetry and songs about the climate emergency on August the 27th, Tuesday evening at 6.30pm in front of Council Chambers in Little Mallop Street. Time for you to learn and write your own. We look forward to hearing from you. Please look on Persistent Presence page and Instagram under Thrive for Future. Thank you so much for listening. Look forward to hearing from you. Hello, Mark here. 
Did you know you can send in an audio message to be on Community Corner absolutely free? That's right, this is a community notice board just like at your local library, your local supermarket, but for the climate community. You can record an audio message and send it to us right there in Messenger to Climactic Show, or just record a voice memo on your phone and email it to hello at climactic.fm. It's as easy as that. For more info, visit www.climactic.fm slash community corner. And if you appreciate this service to the community and want to support us to keep going and keep growing, just visit our Pausable and support us if you can. Your support means so much to us. Thanks. And now back to the show. So I'm sitting here in the heart of Newtown in a bookstore surrounded by beautiful artwork with Marie Lowe's, well known as Dirt Girl. She's also an actress, educator, ethical fashion ambassador, author, storyteller, the list kind of goes on. <laughs> Marie believes in the power of storytelling as a vessel for fostering empathy and social and environmental change, which is just a beautiful sentence in itself and I'd really like to welcome her to this podcast um, and I'm really interested to hear and speak with her today. Thank you so much for having me. My pleasure and I'm really fascinated for those who know you as Dirt Girl that's a pretty profound part of your life and how did you get there what's your journey been from up until this point? So I grew up on Bunjalan country in Grafton and Yamba in New South Wales. Um, I grew up with paddocks to the horizon behind my house with a veggie garden and parents that were profoundly and um, irreversibly connected to uh, to our planet and, and to helping other people. Uh, my world, even when I was very little, was really never just about the immediate people or places in my life we always were talking about politics at our dinner table I went on home visits with my mum who was um, in child protection and I grew up really in the backyards of other people's you know houses with their families and their stories so I've always been interested in story and because of where I grew up I was around nature a lot I was around animals um, I would go on bushwalks uh, it was part of my life and I became vegan when I was 12 I'm, I'm not vegan at the moment I've gone on different journeys with that but my understanding and connection with nature started really young and was very deep from the start um, and ever since then you know I've had quite a lot of um, personal loss in my life but one thing that has always held me is nature and the universe and um, and I know that's where I go home to. I know that we are nature and I feel um, incredibly passionate and connected to writing a better story for the next generation because I'm an elder in my family, younger than I expected to be and I'm an elder by way of being a human on this planet and I believe that it's our responsibility, all of us, to write a better story for the next generation. To clarify, and it's, it's not something, you know, that's um, incorrect. I'm not an elder, an Indigenous elder in, in my world. I'm um, a white woman. Mm. I use that term elder because I am connected with um, Indigenous communities in Australia. It's, it's part of how I see... Um, 
the the fabric of society it's a word that I'm connected with I say an elder in my family in in a more literal sense because um I am someone that my family members turn to and that the people who were older than me that I turned to as a child um left my life um or are no longer able to be that for me earlier than was expected so and I also spend a lot of time with children so I'm around kids all the time and um and I'm constantly aware of the impact that I'm having on their lives Mm. and in your work with environmentalism I heard from you earlier that um you go very broad um to very broad lengths so you go from potentially communicating through story or songs i know that you're in a band yes. as well called mother earth <laughs> yes. is that right dirt girl and mother earth so ah. yes me being dirt girl mother earth yes fantastic yeah but you also mentioned that you would then potentially go to the steps of parliament mm. so tell me about the ways in which you take action and, and what they mean for you and, and what you try and impart on others through that action yeah so in my work as dirt girl I um, spend a lot of time with families and communities <clears throat> I literally spend a lot of time with my hands in the earth where they live um, and together we learn how to grow food where they live or how to handle waste um, or rubbish with care so there's all these ways that together we're trying to write a better story for for their communities and for their planet and then what happens with spending time with different communities is that you particularly being in the public eye and being on tv and on radio you have a platform to carry their message to people that they might not be otherwise able to reach and so I have had the privilege of um, taking messages to Canberra, to Parliament, and sitting with ministers in their office and talking um, with them on, on behalf of the communities. Um, but that means that they're with me too. You know, it's not my story necessarily, it's theirs. And, um, yeah, so it's been a, it's, it's a wild ride when it comes to the scope of my activism, um, both as Dirt Girl and, and as me, Marie Lowe's. Um, yeah. Fantastic. It's so fantastic. And you work so much with children, and I find children just, just joy because they aren't um, – well, there's something about them. They basically say what they think. They ask why lots of times, and they won't rest until they get an answer. And often we can't give them one, um, which I find quite funny. Um, so what is it that you feel working with children has taught you, and what are the main things that they are talking to you about? One of the things that working with children has taught me, which may not seem directly related to environmental sustainability – but I believe is related to sustainability is that we all need to feel empowered and worthy of love and worthy of having a voice and holding space in this world and when we all feel like we have that right and are embraced then we are able to be our best selves and that means we can make good choices in our personal lives and it means that we can um, engage with larger issues in our life because we have the headspace to and it means that we um, are engaged with the tools that we need to affect change you know it's a flow on effect so one thing that I do with all the children that I hang out with 
you know we talk about the worm farms that they have at home we talk about the gardens and what that they have at home and what they love to grow and and how amazing it is that you get to eat what you grow Um, we talk about things that they've seen in episodes we talk about all kinds of things but the one thing I make sure I do with every child I meet and sometimes it's you know 400 in a day or thousands is I take a moment with them and I look them in the eyes and I listen to what they're saying whatever it is in that moment and I tell them how amazing they are and it's such a simple thing to just stop and connect and be present and make someone feel so valued but if that's all I do with those kids if they have one person in their life especially someone they look up to so much take that time with them and they walk away with that experience for me that is that's invaluable that's the biggest gift that I I could get to not just give but get back so that's something that I've learned with kids and I and I try and do it with adults too now is be present and be loving You've definitely got a very kind, compassionate energy, so I'm feeling it. That thank you. (laughs) I'm glad. And do the kids, um, through the work that you do, um, whether it be um, in um, as an actress or throughout, when you're talking to children or people, what are the main things that people are talking to you about in your community at the moment? What's on people's minds? Uh, Waste is on people's minds, and how to handle um, our recycling and our waste with care. Um, Climate change is a huge issue that I feel like a lot of adults don't have the answers to at the moment or um, maybe they don't have the commitment to the energy that it's going to take to make the necessary changes, which is a hard but um, honest truth. And that leaves our young people in a difficult situation because Um, A lot of our young people are engaging with these challenges without having the same sense of comfort that we, that older people have. They've enjoyed great availability and great comfort to the things that they want. And the, um, our young people are actually growing up without that being taken for granted. And so I, you know, I think, um, rather than just saying climate change is something people are talking about, going into it in that depth of, of the trickiness of how we navigate it and even navigating it in terms of mental health for young people because there's a big question mark placed on the future and insecurity is not a great thing for mental health for young people. So, you know, these are some of the things that I'm hearing at the moment. I'm also hearing and feeling a, a real return to, to connection and in-person connection and um, and connection with things that people love and um, joy, you know. And I, um, this is a bit of an obnoxious name drop, <laughs> but um, in my alter persona as Dirt Girl, um, who is, it's not a role, it's part of my heart and several people channel their heart into Dirt Girl. Um, so that's a shared experience. But when I'm being Dirt Girl, um, recently I was speaking with Jack Johnson and we were hanging out and he said a phrase that I use as well and that Dirt Girl uses and that's that we protect what we love and you can't just tell someone to care about something and expect them to do it that's authoritative it's short-lived um, that that energy can't be sustained because you have to 
you know but if you love something if you love somewhere um, then you feel it when you see it being hurt and that makes you want to step up and protect and littlest kids have that instinct to protect someone that they love or something that they love and so for us you know we were talking about that idea that we protect what we love and leading from a place of joy and having people go out and connect with what they love and and I'm really excited about that conversation because the creator of Dirt Girl the co-creator Kate McQuillan and Huey Eustace they have been talking about this for a long time that we lead with joy and we lead with love and that that's a sustainable place to affect change from. And now I'm hearing from our community and from people that that's where if they feel best hanging out, you know. And so they're not actually uh, retreating away from facing the challenges that, that we see, that we're seeing and we will continue to see and they'll grow. But they people are wanting to um, approach things from a place of love and connection and and that's an amazing and um, inimitably powerful starting point for affecting the change that we need to see in this planet if we're all starting from a place of love and joy we are on a much better path than we have been in the last hundred years and how important do you think it is for us to start articulating um, what our future will look like together. You know, we're talking about acting from a place of love as opposed to fear, I suppose, which we all know we've all had experiences in our lives where we've been, something's happened and someone's acted out of fear uh, instead of love. And we, we know the difference, you know, it does, it, the result is different. And often when you act out of love, that result is far more compassionate and open and it gets you further and it lasts longer and it means more. Um, so if, if we're thinking that the rhetoric at the moment is fear, we're hearing um, everywhere on the tabloids, wherever you get your news feed, um, it's all fear-based to the most part. So how do we start telling stories of love and sharing our visions for the future? Well, I think first of all, people acknowledging how they're feeling. Uh, people are feeling exhausted from these negative information campaigns. They're feeling exhausted by only hearing fear. They're feeling exhausted by not being able to believe in the politicians and leaders in this country. And, and that's a shared experience around the world. So acknowledging how we're feeling in the first place rather than just trying to forget it or consume or, you know, to, to ignore that. I think acknowledging how we're feeling and then stepping outside of ourselves and connecting with like-minded people really for me that's the number one is when we connect with people who love what we love it's greater than the sum of its parts you know we can't we can't create that energy if we are by ourselves at home but if when we connect with like-minded and like-hearted people there's just there's something undeniable that happens and you feed off each other and you are energized by each other and you're emboldened and and when people ask me how do I stay hopeful given the the scheme of what's happening in the world that's my answer is connect with people like you and also connect with nature go outside and surrender and feel held by nature because it has us you know so I think um, stepping outside of ourselves is a great place if we don't have the answers then that's okay but let's connect with others uh, with our world and other people and um, and be in it together a question I like to ask 
um, people is around the solutions to climate change that excite them the most. Um, but I'm getting a feeling that you're the kind of person that sees things more as interconnected systems. Um, so I'll still ask the question, but happy for it to be <laughs> that it is kind of all consuming. But for you, you know, which of the solutions that um, you see around us, which exist, excite you the most? The conversation about reducing at first instance is absolutely crucial. I do personally believe that individual behaviour changes on a small scale are really important, that little things do make a big difference. I also believe that we need to see widespread structural changes on a governmental level um, for us to be able to to deal with the potential loss of biodiversity on a climate level. Not just hum- It's not just about human health, it's also about biodiversity for me. So I would like to see structural change. I'm excited because certain governments around the world are making amazing steps in the right direction. I'd like to see our Australian government um, follow suit and be less short-sighted. <laughs> with their policies and with how they serve stakeholders. One change that we're seeing around the world to, to try and you know sum it up in a point is um, a move towards circular economies. So repairing, renewing, uh, regenerating, reducing, reusing, uh, all, all those re-words are awesome. And that's really where we need to, we need to change the whole system and, um, and, and, and those are really key things that we're seeing happening around the world and it's working and it um, respects products and product life cycle. It respects the people who are involved in making things. Um, people aren't treated disposably nor are resources and then people are involved in learning skills and upskilling to be able to uh, extend the life cycle of products. You know, it, the environmental and social outcomes of, of a circular economy are very exciting. So I'm excited about that. There's so much to be excited by. Mm. There are so many solutions to be excited by. It's, it's actually unfounded, really. It was lovely to meet you tonight and you did such a beautiful job here tonight with the launch of Orundumai, which is a beautiful new cookbook as well. Great host, great facilitation, such a chance meeting as well. So thank you for making yourself available and for speaking with us today. It's been such a pleasure. Thanks for your work too. My pleasure. Make me a promise that you'll all go and try one thing this week. Try and cook with one thing, try and sub one thing out, put one thing in. Go on this beautiful journey of learning, do some reading, ask some questions, connect with culture, connect with your own back garden and buy our book. Thank you. (laughs) Well, I know I'm speaking for someone here and that's never really a good idea to do, but in having some conversations with Georgia about this interview and what it was like meeting Rebecca and and learning all this about the fate of native foods in Australia, I know that going into this, it was absolutely true that Georgia didn't know that much about the native food scene in Australia, which I think really goes to show how little we all know about native foods. Georgia isn't just saying that, she is a real foodie. She knows more about food than almost anyone I know and works professionally in that industry. So the work that Rebecca and Damien are doing here isn't just niche, it isn't just some fad, it is absolutely the rediscovery of what has been here for tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of years. 
and what makes the most sense to be using in this country. Plants and food species that are adapted to it, that the soil here really needs. So this was an amazing opportunity to go along to this event to speak to Rebecca and Damien and Marie and Georgia, I'm so proud of the way you really grabbed it with both hands and made it your own and, and brought back such a great set of interviews from this event. There's going to be times on the show, and I think there's already been a few, that we get to interview people who, not long after that, will become famous big names, who will become household names, who will be the Greta in their time, which might only be a year or two from now. Rebecca and Damien and Marie, they're already really big, but they deserve to be a lot bigger because of the merit of what they're saying and what they're doing. These are three people that I look up to greatly and I admire and I want to emulate. I want to be like them. And I hope you enjoyed this and you got something out of it. We would love to hear what you took away from this interview. And if you could drop us an email to hello at climactic.fm, send us a note on social media, or better yet, if you could send us an audio message of what you liked or what you learned from this episode, we would love that. If you'd let us play that on the show, that would be even better. Thank you so much for joining us today, spending some of your time with us, and we can't wait to be back next week with another episode. On behalf of Georgia, myself, and the whole Climactic Collective, have a great week. Thank you for joining us. You've been listening to Climactic, the flagship podcast of the Climactic Collective a podcast network dedicated to lifting the voices of the climate community. You can find out more about the people behind Climactic and all the shows we produce at climactic.fm. We are a social enterprise podcast network, and we greatly appreciate your support. You can find a link to our Pausable where you can support us directly in the show notes of this episode or from our website. Thank you for listening, and from the whole Climactic Collective, keep up the great work and take care of each other in these climactic times. The Climactic Collective. Collective.